teachers, administrators, and other school staff play an important role. Education can be a shining light, and it's really the equalizer for everybody. You are making a difference in people's lives, including your students. You can have a really bad day at school and still realize that what you're doing is making a bigger difference. We are the best profession in the world next to doctors, but even a doctor had a teacher. Find what helps at cdcfoundation.org slash how right now. Teachers, administrators, and other school staff play an important role. Education can be a shining light, and it's really the equalizer for everybody. You are making a difference in people's lives, including your students. You can have a really bad day at school and still realize that what you're doing is making a bigger difference. We are the best profession in the world next to doctors, but even a doctor had a teacher. Find what helps at cdcfoundation.org slash how right now. Four Terrifying Ritualistic Killers Murder is a horrific crime, but for people with twisted minds, it can be something they do out of necessity. For those on this list, their kills involve specific rituals that are done to serve a satanic cult, or even to simply satisfy a bloodlust. These are four terrifying ritualistic killers. Number four, Howard Green and Carol Marin. In December of 1979, a passing motorist in West Patterson, New Jersey, thought he saw two figures lying by the side of the road. Police were called to investigate, and what they found were two bodies wrapped in sackcloth. These two were later identified as 33-year-old Carol Marin and 51-year-old Howard Green. Finding dead bodies by the road is bad enough, but the way they were treated was truly disturbing. Both victims had been severely beaten. In their hands were knots of black hair, their faces smashed in from the left side, and on the right side their eye had been stabbed. They both received around 50 puncture wounds in the same areas of their bodies, and the tips of their ears had even been cut off. In the autopsy it was shown that they had also been completely drained of their blood. The couple had been murdered in a ritualistic manner. Investigators then looked into their background and on the surface they appeared like everyday people. Carol was a secretary and Howard was a cab driver. They seemed to have led a mundane existence with nothing that made them stand out. Their friends were interviewed and all they could say was that they had seen the couple the day before in the New York City subway and that everything seemed fine between them. In their apartment, police saw signs of a struggle, as well as a horde of black magic paraphernalia. While there were no obvious suspects, there was a very eerie letter that a reporter received about the crime. Journalist Maury Terry was sent an anonymous letter saying that the incident was linked to a secret group that the letter writer referred to as OTO. It's widely believed that the OTO mentioned was referring to Ordo Templi Orientis, the famous spiritual religious group founded by Aleister Crowley. They also hinted that more satanic murders would follow, but despite the unique content of this letter, nothing substantial ever came out of it. While others may have been killed, no other bodies were ever found. 
In the end, the case was complicated because the jurisdiction of the investigation became muddled. Detectives from Brooklyn admitted to not having done a follow-up investigation on the case simply because they thought the jurisdiction was with the Jersey police. Meanwhile, the Jersey police themselves thought that since the crime likely happened in Brooklyn at their apartment, then it was their case. This ultimately stalled the investigation, and likely a lot of evidence disappeared over the following months. Today, no one knows why they were murdered or who killed the couple in such a specific and horrific manner. Number 3. Otis Toole Born on March 5, 1947 in Jacksonville, Florida, Otis Toole led a very disturbed life ever since it started. He was born to a mother who was a zealot Christian, while his older sister physically abused him and forced him to wear girls' clothing. His grandmother was a Satanist who had him help her rob graves to secure the body parts she needed for her rituals. Prior to his father leaving the family entirely, he too abused the young boy, making him perform various sexual acts on his male friends. To make matters worse, Otis only had an IQ of 75 and was likely a functional autistic. When he dropped out of school in ninth grade, he began meeting men at nearby gay bars. Otis would later admit to police that he knew he was gay by the time he turned 10 and had come out to his family. At 14, a salesman forced him to have sex, so Otis killed him by running him over with his own car. After this, Otis went on the run and began moving all around the United States. At 17, he was arrested for loitering and upon his release began prostituting and panhandling to survive. During the 60s and 70s, he was never formally arrested but was suspected of two murders, that of 24-year-old Patricia Webb and Ellen Holman, who was 31. When Tool went back to Jacksonville in 1976, he met Henry Lee Lucas. They engaged in a romantic relationship and the two then began to drift together. It was during these travels that they killed and terrorized several innocent people. They started by simply robbing convenience stores along their route, but they soon escalated into rape, torture, and murder. Hitchhikers were often targets as well as several women whose cars had broken down. Eventually the pair parted ways. Then in January of 1982, Toole barricaded his new lover named George Sonnenberg in his own house before setting it on fire. Sonnenberg survived for a week in the hospital before ultimately succumbing to his injuries. The following year, Toole was arrested for an unrelated arson event, and he also confessed to the Sonnenberg killing. Two months later, Henry Lee Lucas was taken into custody for illegal possession of firearms. It was then that he began confessing to the various crimes he and Toole committed together. Initially, Toole denied that what Lucas was saying was true, but later on began admitting to his crimes. He confessed to murdering an 18-year-old hitchhiker in Pensacola and also abducting and killing a 20-year-old female from a nearby club. Another crime definitely linked to him was the abduction of Adam Walsh, the son of John Walsh, host and creator of America's Most Wanted. In fact, the show was created as a result of Adam's abduction. Otis confessed to the crime twice before redacting his statements, but eventually he was found guilty of it. 
Toole told police he had lured Adam in a Sears parking lot with the promise of candy and toys. When he began crying, he attacked him and cut off his head, carrying it around for several days before tossing it in a canal. Toole was convicted of six murders in total, but it's believed he may have killed more than that. It's the same for Lucas, who's tied to 11 murders, but has confessed to nearly 100, although it's difficult to tell which ones are true and which ones aren't. Both men said they were part of a satanic cult who had ties to the higher-ups in government. They explained they were hired by a group called Hand of God for contract killings, and that they both received training for a period of time as well. Toole particularly claimed he witnessed live human sacrifices and other killings while he was part of this mysterious group. Aside from all that, what made Otis even more terrifying was that he was completely unpredictable in his attacks and had no distinct type of victim. He would kill, male or female, young or old, depending on what he fancied in the moment. Moreover, he killed using various implements and admitted to eating parts of his victims and even drinking their blood. Otis Toole died in prison from liver cirrhosis while serving a life sentence in September of 1996. Number 2. Evangelist Family Massacre Born in 1885 in Naples, Italy, Benjamin Evangelista moved to Pennsylvania in the United States at the age of 19. He changed his last name from Evangelista to Evangelist and then decided to take on an unusual job. In 1906, he began receiving visions from God and decided to record them in a four-volume book called The Oldest History of the World, Discovered by Occult Science. He soon declared himself to be a divine prophet, mystic healer, and spiritual leader while working as a carpenter as his day job. For his faith in mystic healings, Benny created a bizarre altar consisting of various wax figures, celestial planets, and one huge eye that was electronically lit up. Every time he would conduct a healing service, he would charge $10 and use this apparatus as an altar for his sermons. Benny eventually married, had a family, and moved to Detroit. Everything was going well for him. However, on the night of July 3, 1929, that all changed. That night, he was at home with his wife and kids when they were all brutally attacked by an axe-wielding intruder. His wife and four children received multiple blows while they slept in their beds. Benny was killed while inside his study and so viciously attacked that he was almost decapitated. Police immediately tried to find out who was responsible for it. It wasn't far-fetched to think that some of Benny's clients may have held grudges or that he made enemies while performing healings, so past clients were looked into. The night before the attack, Benny called the watchman of a house that was being torn down. He told them that he had purchased all the salvageable lumber and that it was to be delivered to his home the next day where he would then pay the delivery man. However, no one showed up the next day. Benny didn't show up because he was killed, but the crew also didn't show up. Police then theorized that the murder was tied to a robbery because the cash intended for payment was never found inside the home. Unfortunately, Benny never recorded the name of the delivery crew, so there were no direct suspects to the murder. 
Over the years, theories have been proposed as to why Benny and his family were killed. They ranged from angry occult members to disgruntled former customers. There were also those who believed he was killed by opposing congregations who were against his teachings. Regardless, the case of the Evangelist family has become one of the longest unsolved and most brutal murders in Detroit's history. Number 1. Richard Ramirez Born in El Paso, Texas on February 29, 1960, Richard Ramirez was the youngest of five children. At a young age, he received multiple head injuries, particularly when he was hit by a swing when he was five. Some say his demeanor changed after this, and it also caused him to start having epileptic fits. During his adolescent years, he began using drugs as a form of self-medication and became heavily influenced by his cousin Miguel. Miguel Ramirez was a violent war veteran who often told Richard how he had tortured various Vietnamese women while in service. He even took pictures of his brutality and showed them off, and by the time Richard was 13, he witnessed Miguel murder his own wife. By 1977, Richard dropped out of school and was arrested for the first time for marijuana possession. After his release, he moved to Los Angeles, California, progressing to cocaine use and burglary while beginning his fascination into Satanism. On June 28, 1984, 79-year-old Jenny Vinkow was found stabbed, sexually assaulted, and killed in her home. This was Ramirez's first victim, and nine months later he struck again attacking Maria Hernandez. She escaped, however, but that's when Ramirez turned his attention to her roommate, Dale Okazaki, and killed her instead. He also attacked another woman in a different home on the very same evening, and this caused the media to dub him as the Valley Intruder. More murders followed and Ramirez escalated in both his tactics and brutality. His main M.O. would be to stalk the outside of the victim's home in the middle of the night before breaking in. Most of the time he would wear black as camouflage, and he would often enter the homes of couples. Ramirez would first subdue or kill the male before raping and killing the female. He would murder his victims using a 22 revolver, but sometimes also stab them, slash them with a machete, or bludgeon them with a tire iron. He would frequently leave behind satanic pentagrams as a signature to let police know it was him. In 1985 alone, he attacked and killed over a dozen people. Soon the police and FBI were on the case, and feeling the pressure, he decided to move out of Los Angeles and head to San Francisco. There he killed two more people, and his signature style made it clear that it was him. He was then dubbed as the Night Stalker, and attacked again on August 24th, only this time he made crucial mistakes. Prior to the attack, he left a footprint while scoping out a property, and a witness took note of his license plate. Later on, he attacked another couple, raping the woman and shooting her fiancé. He forced the woman to swear her love for Satan, and for some reason he left her alive, and so she managed to provide a strong description of her attacker. After several days, Ramirez's car was found abandoned and his fingerprints were found. This allowed police to connect the crimes to a face since he already had a police record from his prior arrests. 
His mugshot and background were featured all over national TV, along with information given by the survivors. On August 31st of 1985, he was finally arrested after attempting to carjack two vehicles before the residents captured and beat him up. He was then convicted of 13 counts of murder, 5 attempted murders, 14 burglaries, and 11 sexual assaults. He was sentenced to die in the gas chamber, but instead passed away from B-cell lymphoma complications in June of 2013 before the sentence could be carried out. So there were four terrifying ritualistic killers. These sadistic killers all had many things in common. A lust to kill, a need to inflict pain, and a seemingly endless drive to ritually carry out their twisted rage onto innocent individuals. If you like this video, please remember to subscribe to our channel, and let us know in the comments if you have any cases you want us to cover, because we love hearing from you. Thanks for watching, and I'll see you next week. A lot is being asked of people working in schools. Teachers have more and more things to do. The shortage of teachers right now, um, you know, having to fill a lot of holes and, and wear a lot of hats, it's, it's very difficult. There are steps you can take to manage stressful times, whether in the classroom or outside of work. For me personally, I can disconnect by just being outside. Laughing <laughs> works a lot. Find what helps at cdcfoundation.org slash how right now.